Testing. Good morning. Happy Sabbath, everybody. Uh, good morning. Happy Sabbath, everybody. Glad that all of you are here this morning. Elder McNair with a smooth and buttery voice like that. And put something on wax, man, and record something for all of us. And really, you're making me look bad because I always have my guitar here, but I never play because I'm too afraid. But thank you for that rebuke this morning. Uh, happy Sabbath, everybody. God is good. Amen. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's communion Sabbath. And uh, I feel a lot like uh, Elder Anthony Coxum today, uh, my father. Uh, when communion would roll around, he would always make sure his shirts and everything were uh, starched and pressed and everything in the house was in order and made sure to have his white tie. And he always made me, from the age probably around eight or nine, wear my white tie on communion Sabbath. So I'm like an eight or nine-year-old boy in the audience with my white tie on as if I'm serving. Little did I know he was grooming me for this day where I am here right now. Amen. God is good. I'm so thankful. Um, I'm kind of nervous today because I haven't stood in the pulpit for quite some time, so I'm not sure what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do, but I know you'll say amen anyhow. Uh, so I praise God for you and thank you for that. Uh, today we're going to begin our series entitled Seven. What is it? The pastor will begin that uh, during the second service today. We're really excited about it. Uh, it'll be a seven-part series. In the book of Revelation, Jesus spoke to seven different types of people. Really, more specifically, he spoke about seven last-day attitudes that will arise in the church. And these seven last-day attitudes have the potential to keep many of us out of heaven and away from God. So we're really excited about that. But this morning, just because we are in the mode of communion today, let's consider a passage in Luke chapter 22. If you'll turn there with me real quick, Luke chapter 22, uh, we'll read just verse one through six. I simply want to share with you today what God laid on my heart. <clears throat> Luke 22. Let's just begin at verse 1. The word of God says, Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover, called what? Was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Lord, have mercy. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan, then who? Satan. Then Satan, then who? Satan. Entered Judas, <laughs> called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted, the Bible says, and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. With your prayers and hopefully God's help today. I'm not big on titles, but I just want to speak to you on the subject dinner with the devil. Let's pray. Father, I need your help because, quite frankly, I have no idea what I'm doing. <clears throat> I am standing before your people today 
trying to impart truth and wisdom and life. And in and of myself, I cannot do that. I am an unworthy human being. And so today, what I ask, as always, is this. Hide me behind the cross and use me as you see fit. There is somebody here today who needs a word from you, not from Pastor Coxon. So God, speak loud and clear. May there be no miscommunication. May there be no misinterpretation. May we all hear your voice clearly in this moment for what you're trying to say. And, oh, God, we'll be careful to give you praise, honor, and glory. And as always, if you never do another thing, save us all into your blessed kingdom. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everybody say amen. Amen. Dinner (coughs) with the devil. Quite obviously here uh, in this passage, as we do a character study today, Jesus is at the end of his public and earthly ministry. And what you'll remember is that at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus chose 12 men to his side to be with him, to train them, to equip them, to empower them, to prepare them for the time when they would have to go out into the world and prepare the rest of the world for his soon coming. Now, what is sobering about that and what is interesting about who Jesus chose is the simple fact that Christ had no contingency plan. There was no plan B for the mission he set out to do. And when Jesus chose 12 ordinary men with no particular skills, abilities or gifts, I have to wonder to myself if Jesus made the best choice he could have at that time. They had no suitable gifts or abilities that would make them particularly suited for the job that God wanted them to do. Now, the majority of them were fishermen. And of course, we all know that clever quip, that clever joke that Jesus gave when he came to his disciples, where he told them, I will make you fishers of men. But if I'm an employer hiring employees, none of these men would be on my list. In fact, they are so uneducated and so unlearned, and you have heard this before, in the book of Acts, the the, the word of God is translated in the Greek, calls them illiterate ignoramuses. They cannot read and they can barely write, and they are ignorant, uneducated, and unlearned. So much so that in the book of Acts, after the Holy Spirit falls on them and they start preaching the good news of God, the people look at them almost confused for a second and say to them, you must have been with Jesus. For the truth and the words that are coming out of your mouth could not have possibly come from you. It must have come from God. These are 12 unlearned, ordinary men who are not suited for the call that God gave them. That is, except for one person, Judas Iscariot. And let me help you today and put this in a modern context so that you understand exactly where I'm going and we are on uh, the same page. If I could put this in a modern context today, I would say that the disciples, while the disciples are struggling (laughs) feverishly just to get their GED, Judas Iscariot has already finished his doctorate degree at Harvard University or some other Ivy League school. 
while the disciples are having trouble holding conversation in professional circles and among the religious elite or the professionals of the day, while they are struggling simply to string together phrases and sentences and split verbs the right way and speak properly, Judas fits right in. While the disciples are uneducated and unlearned, the spirit of prophecy tells us that Judas has a commanding appearance about him. He has very keen intellect. He's smart and he's savvy and sharp and quick-witted and cunning and very much learned and educated. And the disciples are nowhere close to where he is. As my father would sometimes jokingly tell me, the disciples were maybe a few fries short of a happy meal. While Judas just happened to be all that and a bag of chips. And if I had to make my choice today on who I would choose to be the front runner and the starter for my team that I had chose, Judas would be the one. He would be the franchise hitter. He would be the pitch hitter in the ninth inning that I would trust with the ball in his hand or with the bat in his hand. I would not trust Peter or Thomas or James or John. Judas is the most qualified person out of all the disciples. But there is speculation today amongst theological circles (laughs) that Judas had all of the gifts, but none of the calling. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) In fact, it could actually be argued today that Jesus did not even officially call Judas at all. In fact, the spirit of prophecy tells us that on the mountain that day, after Jesus has prayed all night long about who he should choose, after in the crowd on the mountain, as he is calling his disciples to him, he's making his NFL draft picks and he's calling Matthew and, and, and John and James and Peter and Thomas and Bartholomew. She says that Judas simply urged his way into the group and Jesus did not refuse him. But he was not officially called and not necessarily chosen to be in the group. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, be careful of moving in gifting rather than calling. I'm going to help myself in this one because I know you won't say amen on this. You can have... All the gifts you can dream of in this world. But if you do not have anointing. (laughs) If you do not have calling. Gifts will never do you any good. If you don't have calling. God will not be with you. (sighs) It is more profitable to have the calling of God and the anointing of God without the gifts than rather to have the gifts without the calling. (laughs) Because when God is with you, God will make a way for you. If you have the calling on your life, success is always the outcome of anything that you do in your life. But if you just got gifts and you don't have the calling, you are at a deficit. I know so many uh, of my theologian brethren back uh, at Oakwood 
who, who, who believed that the sole criteria for going into ministry was preaching. Come on, say amen. And, and, and because they had eloquence of speech and because they were very poised and put together in the pulpit, they thought that is all they needed to make it in ministry. But brothers and sisters, if you have gifts, oh my goodness, and you do not have the calling, you cannot be successful in ministry. And what is true in the spiritual is also true in the natural. If you move ahead of God in trying to do your own thing and God is not with you, don't expect God to bless your mess. When God has called me to something, that means the favor of God is on my life. When God has called me to do something, his callings are his enablings. When God asks me to do something, that it is, is an indication to me that God is leading me to a place where he is already working. And the problem with many people today is that we will move ahead of God or behind of God or go to a place where God has not asked us to go and we ask God to bless where we are going instead of asking God to take us to the place where he is already blessing us. There is a deep confidence, oh my, in knowing that God is with you. There, there, there is an assurance, blessed assurance, in knowing that Jesus is mine. There, there, there is a confidence and a blessing in your, there is a peace, Elder McNair, in knowing that God is leading your life. For when the storms of life come in your life, <laughs> at least you can say, I know I am where God wants me to be. So that means when your marriage is rough, and you're about ready to give up, at least you can say, I know I married the right one. <laughs> Y'all ain't going to say amen today. When your job is getting on your last nerves, at least you can say, God gave me this job. When your education is not working out for you, at least you can say, I trusted God for this. I chose this major because God led me into it. At the very least, when God has called you and you move in the calling of God, at least you know the anointing is on your life. Something to be said about the favor of God. Many times in my life as well, I may as well be honest today, I walk around these hallways and in this church, and when somebody says pastor, I often look around to see who y'all talking to. <clears throat> Sometimes I don't even feel confident enough in myself in order to be a pastor. I cannot believe that that title is attached with my sorry name today. There are many times, and pastor, you know this as well, that we feel that our gifts and our skills and our abilities do not measure up to what God is really asking us to do. But what keeps us grounded today, and at least for me, let me speak for myself, I know God has called me. Don't have all the gifts. Don't have all the skills and the abilities. But what I do know is this, God called me. And I don't know if he called me for a reason or for a season or for a lifetime, but what I do know right now, God 
called me to this thing. And that's what gives me the confidence to keep on going. But if you don't have calling and all you got is gifts, you don't have confidence. You're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your own skills and your own abilities. And the Bible tells us today that Judas moved in in his own gifts. (laughs) Mistake number one. In fact, that when I read the scriptures today and as I studied this thing this week, it, it seemed to me that Judas was actually saying, man, I should be in the group. I deserve to be with y'all. Y'all don't know what you're doing. You're ignorant. You are imbeciles. You you can't even speak well. What are you doing with Jesus as he's coming to set up an earthly kingdom? I should be in the group. I deserve to be there. You need my help. (laughs) Well, the question is, why did Judas want a place among them in the first place? Reason being is because he saw greatness in Christ. And do not get in your head right now that just because we call Judas the betrayer, that he always hated Jesus, never knew Jesus or anything like that. No, that's not necessarily true. The spirit of prophecy tells us again that he was greatly enlightened by Jesus. He was inspired by him. When he saw Jesus do all of these miracles, he saw him as a great person, but he never came into relationship with him. I'll help you in just one minute. And Judas thought that if somebody great was coming onto the scene, he would simply ride his coattail to the top. (laughs) Frankly, the disciples believed it as well. Judas thought he was superior to them. He thought they needed his help. And believe it or not, the disciples believed the exact same thing. They are ignorant and they are foolish. In fact, again, the spirit of prophecy tells us that they were surprised that Jesus did not choose more of the religious elite to help them in their endeavor. And so when Judas came on the scene, they were singing his praises. They were happy that Judas came. Oh, man, we got Judas with us. Man, he is so smart. He's got his doctor degree. Look at all the gifts that he has. He's so intelligent. He's keen. He's sharp. He has all the intellect. They were happy to have him there. And so while Judas has a superiority complex, now the disciples have an inferiority complex. They are actually looking up to Judas. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Mm. Uh, So because he was smarter than them. Here is what they do. They sing his praises. And then the word of God says they make him in charge of the purse. In other words, they make him the treasurer of the group, the CFO or the chief financial officer. Judas is in charge of all of the money. Now, what you got to understand is that this is no menial task for first and foremost. The disciples don't have any money to begin with. And certainly does not Jesus. He even said one time to somebody, foxes have their holes and birds have their nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless and had no money. And for them to trust Judas with all of their funds was a tremendous vote of confidence in him. And they trusted him so much, they did not even know that routinely he was stealing from them. Oh, y'all don't believe me today. 
the word of God actually says, calls him, Judas was a thief. And he would take from the money that people were giving to the cause of Christ and giving to the disciples and use for his own purposes. But because they looked up to him so much and they trusted him so much, they never second-guessed him for a second. Judas is this superior person. He's smart. But what we find out about him is that Judas, because he is stealing and the word of God calls him clearly a thief, did not care really about generosity and giving help to the cause of Christ. He only cared about himself and he only cared about what he could gain. Mistake number two. Hmm. Brothers and sisters. Oh, man, I didn't want to say this today, but I have to. Um, That same spirit is alive and well in the church today. We are people that are more concerned with self-preservation and making sure we are saved than helping somebody else in need. And what we forget is what Jesus said in Matthew 25. Oh, my goodness. When he said he would separate the sheep and the goats And he said that the goats on his left were simply the people who did not feed him when he was hungry. The people who would not be saved are the people who did not visit him when he was in jail. The people that will not be saved are the people who never gave him anything to drink when he was thirsty. And those people asked Jesus, listen, we never saw you when you were thirsty or when you were hungry or when you were in prison. And Jesus said, if you've done it to the least of these, you have done it to me. There is a spirit where we are more takers in the church than givers. (laughs) You do know God did not just call you for you to be saved. You do know God did not just call you for you to get your blessing, but for you to go out and tell somebody else. And for you to sit in church and be saved and not want to help somebody else, it is a sin against God. Oh, I know I'm speaking the truth right now. It's a sin against God to not help somebody in need when you have the means to do so. In fact, the word again even says, if any man on this earth has this world's good, he sees his brother in need and he does not open up his bowels of compassion. The love of God does not even dwell in him. And so what's funny is Judas is with Jesus and he does not even have a spirit of generosity. (laughs) He's a taker and he's not a giver. And can you imagine somebody like that being with Jesus for three and a half years and the only thing Jesus is preaching about is giving and blessing and loving. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness sake. (laughs) When you suffer, you ought to praise the Lord. Count it all joy. Can you imagine somebody with the spirit of Judas who is with Jesus? He cannot stand it, for in his mind, he is hoping that Jesus will one day set up an earthly kingdom. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, all the while, Jesus is blessing people and he's raising the dead and he's opening the eyes of the blind and he's healing lepers and all of these things. Judas is like, you know what, Jesus, that's all well and good. But, yo, we need to start getting an army together. Yeah, we need to get that organized. Um, We need to start putting our money together so that we can get some swords and some spears and some clubs so that we can take over the Roman Empire. Um, We need to start getting ourselves 
ourselves together so that we can take the kingdom. And little does he know, Jesus is not interested in any of that. Judas is with Jesus, has no spirit of giving or generosity, only has the spirit of taking and getting what he can gain. Judas only cared about himself. Lord have mercy. Which means he could not have agreed with the ministry of Christ. He can't be happy with the way Jesus is doing things. He cannot agree with the way Jesus is moving and everything that Jesus is teaching seems to only make him more uncomfortable, more frustrated, and more mad. Now, here's the turning point. I promise you I'm almost done. What time we go? Oh, we good. Here we go. (laughs) The turning point comes when Mary comes into the room (laughs) to anoint Jesus. Everything comes to a head at that point in the story, I believe, John chapter 12. The word of God says Jesus is at the table with the disciples. They are reclining at the table. And Mary hobbles in and sneaks in a woman. And in her hand, the Bible says she has an alabaster box of expensive and pure spikenard. Most scholars say that this type of ointment would have been imported from somewhere else and it would have cost her somewhere around at least a year's wages. So she comes and the Bible says that she breaks this ointment over Jesus' head and anoints him. And while she is worshiping Jesus at his feet and praising his name for all the wonderful things that he has done and he is doing and for who he is, the word of God says that Judas stands up and rebukes her. Now, most of the Gospels actually say that it was the disciples that were murmuring amongst themselves. But I love the book of John because the book of John has that name calling ministry. I love that. Called name calling ministry. <laughs> Put a name on this thing. And John says, Judas stands up and says, Jesus, how are you going to let this woman waste this on you? I mean, not waste. I mean, I mean, actually, we could have used this for the poor. The funny thing is, even the money that they were supposed to be using for the poor, homeboy was stealing it for himself. But he rebukes Mary at the table and says, Jesus, stop this. We could use this money for the poor. Why are you allowing her to do this? And Jesus is sitting there reclining at the table. And the word of God says that Jesus says to him, Judas, calm down. What are you talking about? Don't you understand what I'm about to do? I am about to go to the cross and die for your sins. This woman has come just to anoint me for my burial. What have you done? The poor you have had, you will have with you always. But me, you will not have with you always. Judas, what are you thinking about? So the word of God says that Jesus, in some sense, rebukes Judas. And the reason this thing all comes to a head is because, mind you, for three and a half years, Jesus has been preaching good news. He has been preaching generosity and love, all these things that Judas does not agree with. And at this moment, it comes to a head because even though Jesus was never really speaking specifically to Judas, he was still trying to save him for three and a half years. 
But this is the first time in Scripture <laughs> where Jesus openly and directly and specifically rebukes Judas. And Judas's heart cannot take it. Have mercy, O oh God. This is when he realized, man, Jesus is not about this earthly kingdom stuff. This is when Judas finally, it snapped in his mind. Oh my goodness, he's only talking about spiritual things. What in the world is going on? And the spirit of prophecy tells us that Judas, in some sense, was trying to force Jesus' hand because the Bible says as soon as Jesus finishes correcting him, he goes out to the chief priests and asks them, what will you give me for Jesus? <laughs> it all came to a turning point at that point in Scripture. And the word of God says that he himself sought how he would betray Jesus. Oh, mistake number three. Brothers and sisters, oh man. When nobody can't tell you nothing. <laughs> when you always got to have the last word. When you always got to have the answers. When you cannot endure criticism or rebuke. When nobody can discipline you or tell you when you're going down the wrong path. When nobody can encourage you in the Lord and tell you, listen, you got egg on your face. If you keep going down this road, you're not going to be saved. If you cannot endure that, you are far from the kingdom of God. In fact, a word in Proverbs actually says that somebody who loves discipline is a righteous person, but a person who hates correction hates his own self. And Judas could not take it <laughs> because he thought, in a sense, he was smarter than God. So he moved in with gifts rather than calling. Have mercy, Holy Ghost. <laughs> He only cared about himself, and homeboy could not endure criticism and rebuke. Now, mind you, these are all three underlying things that nobody's really going to notice unless they can delve beneath the surface of somebody's character. They don't just come up at any point. Trial and circumstances bring things to the forefront. And these were underlying issues in Judas's character that even the disciples who slept, ate, and drank with him could not see. But Jesus knew. So for the most part of Jesus' ministry, Judas is brooding now. He's seething. What is he doing? He cannot understand. He is confused by Jesus' movements. He does not understand why he does not call down legions of angels to simply destroy the world in a moment so that Israel can take the kingdom back. He does not understand why Jesus is not amassing an army so that they can go and attack the throne. He does not get why the Messiah is not moving. And he's angry. Because in his mind, from the day he joined the disciples, he thought that when Jesus becomes king, I'll be his right-hand man. So Judas does not agree for all of Jesus' ministry. It comes to a head when Mary anoints Jesus. And then Luke 22, look at it real quick, look at it. Luke 22, chapter 3. <laughs> then the word of God says this. <laughs> oh, I love God's word, don't you? Mm -hmm. After that happens, verse 3, 
Then Satan, who? Entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So the word of God says, after Jesus rebukes him, it was like the last straw for Judas. Not only was he embarrassed in front of the disciples because he thought himself superior to them, he just could not endure criticism and he thought Jesus did not know what he's doing. So the word of God says, Satan, mind you, the word of God does not say he is demon possessed. The word of God says, Satan possesses him. He goes to the chief priests and he asks them, what will you give me for Jesus? Word says the chief priests are delighted and happy and grateful. Oh, yes. Here, here. We will give you 30 pieces of silver. Judas agrees. And mind you, 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave. It's only a couple hundred dollars. And so really, Judas made the biggest mistake in human history for a few dollars. He sold Jesus out, oh my God, for 30 pieces of silver. It ain't worth it. Think about my life today and some of the things I've chosen not to do. And at some point in my life, I just had to say, yo, this ain't worth it, man. (laughs) This ain't worth my soul salvation. I wish many more young people would say the same thing in their lives right now. This just ain't worth it. He sold out God for only a couple hundred dollars. Then not long after that, the word says that they come to the Last Supper. (laughs) I'm going to make this plain. I promise you I'm going to sit down right here. They come to the Last Supper for the Passover meal, as the Bible says. They're in a place where Jesus told them to go that is furnished and ready for them to eat the Passover meal. And this is traditional in Jewish heritage and Hebrew custom. They're sitting there. They're eating the Last Supper, which we now get communion from. And there in that upper room, Jesus and his disciples are seated around the table. Now, there's a problem here, brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not only is Jesus at the table, but Judas is at the table. Now, what's interesting about that is that my Bible just told me that the devil is in Judas. And Jesus knows it. Oh, my goodness. Jesus is at the table. The devil is in Judas, and Judas is at the table. No, 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 you missed that all. Let me say that one more time. Let me back up. Rewind. The devil is in Judas. The word says Satan entered into him. Judas is at the table, (laughs) and Jesus is at the table about to eat dinner together. Now, essentially, that spells out to me that Jesus is about to have dinner 
with the devil. And not only that, oh my goodness, he's about to let the devil take holy communion. <laughs> I'm not making this up, I promise y'all. It's right here. I'm not making it up. Now, 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 hold on, hold on. The reason I cannot wrap my mind around this thing is simply because every time Jesus comes with any close proximity of any demon in the scriptures, <laughs> whenever he comes close to any demonic agency, there is always tension and contention and antagonism. When you read the scriptures, you will always find that if anybody is demon possessed, they are convulsing and going crazy. They're screaming and they're shrieking. Son of God, get away from me. Is it time now to send us into the abyss? Jesus often has to tell demon possessed people, shut up. And then he casts the demon out. But what's funny is here, the devil ain't saying nothing. And he's at the table, oh my goodness, with Jesus. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if that don't blow your mind, not only is the devil at the table with Jesus, not only is he within arm's reach of Jesus, I believe today he's sitting right next to him. And I got proof today. Word says that as they are at the Last Supper, Jesus begins to explain what they are about to do. And many times throughout the gospel, Jesus has told them, listen, I'm going to die. I mean, I'm going to go into the grave, but I promise you I'm going to rise again. Um, they're going to whip me and they're going to beat me. And the Son of Man's going to be in the heart of the earth three days. But like Jonah in the well, I'm going to come right back up out of that thing. So don't be afraid. Jesus has told them time and time and time and time again. But the disciples are so ignorant, and may I use this word today, they are so stupid. They do not get what Jesus is saying to them. And so now this is the last opportunity. <laughs> They're at the table. They're about to take the Lord's Supper. They're about to actually have communion. And Jesus is about to pass out the emblems to the disciples. So first he takes the bread, tells them and said, listen, this is my broken body. I want you to understand that this is my, what you're eating right now. It's not just bread. I want you to know that this is my broken body that's going to be broken, battered and bruised for you. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Jesus began to tell them, this is my broken body. The, the, the Roman centurions, they're going to beat me all night long with a cat of nine tails. They're going to literally peel the flesh away from my back. They will put a crown of thorns on my head and let the blood run down. They will take nine inch spikes and drive them into my wrist. Put me up on the cross. It will cause me excruciating pain, but I will not give up for your sake. I want you to know this is my body. It's going to be broken and bruised for you. So when you eat it, I want you to remember forever what I'm going to do for you. Then yes, he takes out the wine. <laughs> and in those days, it was custom that they only have one cup. And so Jesus looks at the wine and then he begins to pass it to his disciples and he tells them, listen, this is not just wine. What I want you to know is this is my blood. That's going to be shed for the remission 
of your sins. Without the shedding of blood, oh my God, there will be no forgiveness of sins. I want you to know, (laughs) when I go to the cross, my blood will be shed. (laughs) Just like in the days of Egypt. Blood will be sprinkled on your doorpost and on your lintel. And the death angel will pass over you. You will not have to go through the second death because of my blood. And when you drink this wine, and when you break this bread, I want you to know what I am going to do for you. And I just want to say I love you this much. Then the word of God says that As Jesus is speaking, John 13 records it there, that Christ begins to speak negatively. And he begins to say, but one of you will betray me. (laughs) And in those days, as I just told you, they only had one cup and one loaf of bread. They weren't passing out many different types of cups to the disciples. They would pass this around the table. And so Jesus, the Bible says, six times, I looked it up, I counted, six times in John 13, Jesus says in different ways, somebody will betray me. One of you (laughs) is going to sell me out. In fact, I love what he says. He says, have I not chosen you? And one of you is a devil. Mm, mm, mm. (laughs) One of you will betray me. So everybody there is like, oh my goodness, what in the world is he talking about? Because again, the disciples, they just don't get it. They're not smart enough at this time. They're still very clouded. Their vision is blurry. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. And so the Bible says they ask themselves one after the other, Jesus, is it I? Is it me, Jesus? Am I going to do it? Tell me now so I can get it right. Jesus, please, is it me? Surely it's not I. Peter says, no, it ain't. I know it ain't me. I'm willing to die and do whatever I got to do. It ain't me. I know it's not me. And disciple John is leaning on his breast and says, Jesus, please tell us who is it? And the word of God says that Jesus says it's the person who next dips into the cup with me. Now, how do I know the devil (laughs) is in Judas and Judas is sitting next to the devil, next to Jesus, because the word of God says that the very next person that he passes the cup to is Judas. He says, the next person I pass it to is the one who's going to betray me. He turns and gives it to Judas and the disciples steal. Oh, my God. Don't get it. Oh, my goodness. So, 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 so. So, so right before Jesus is about to accomplish the most magnificent event in human history. Thank you, Holy Ghost. Mm. Thank you, God. Just before Jesus is about to go to the cross and win us all back to himself, mm. just before Jesus is about to do what is necessary so that he can stand before his Father with our names, oh my goodness, written on the palms of his hands for forgiveness of our sins, Judas is there. And the devil is inside of him. And the night before, Jesus is having dinner with the devil. Now, 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 you have to wonder, why didn't Jesus just cast out the devil? Funny thing is, I mean, 
There's only two places in Scripture, at least, that I'm aware of right now where the Bible actually says that somebody has Satan or the devil in them, not just a demon. The devil is in them. And the funny thing is the only two occasions where that happens is amongst the disciples who were the closest ones to Jesus. There's Judas. And then the other person is Peter. (laughs) You remember, Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things of God, but the things of man. So you have to wonder to yourself, now, wait a minute, how in the world did these disciples, but especially Judas, how, how did they get the devil inside of them? It really doesn't make sense that Judas had the devil inside of him anyway. Now, I had to ask myself a few questions. Um, how did he get the devil inside of him when Jesus gave the disciples power to trample on scorpions and to cast out demons? Is that not what the word says, Pastor? He gave them authority over evil spirits. How does Judas have a devil? Hmm. And there's no excuse for Judas, and I'll preach about this in this seven series. Judas is not a victim of satanic force. Oh, no, 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 no. Because unlike us today, Judas had a decided advantage. The company that he kept was God. And 11 disciples. If he had a problem, (laughs) he could speak to God. (laughs) He could speak to one of the 11 disciples. How does this brother get a devil? This all led me to one conclusion. And I read the scriptures. Everybody in Jesus' day who had a demon, either before or after, was desirous to have a change in their life and in their hearts. Every single person that Jesus cast a demon out of either said, Jesus, I need your help. I had somebody on behalf of them come to him. And afterwards, they gave their life to him. Remember the the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, who after Jesus took out the legion of demons that were in him, he ran in the boat and said, Jesus, I don't want to stay where I am. I want to go with you. Every single person in scripture who has ever had a demon, it seems like, wanted Jesus to simply remove that thing. You got to ask yourself, why didn't Jesus simply remove the demon? And my suggestion here today, and here's what I postulate, is because Judas's heart was not right. It would have done Jesus no good and Judas no good to remove the demon For the problem was not with the devil so much as it was with Judas. See, the problem we have today is that we think that the devil makes us do wrong. (laughs) You're so far from the truth, it's not even funny. The fact of the matter is, you have a desire, Satan simply empowers you to do it. It's like a man who decides to go to a destination. And so he gets in a boat. He makes sure his sails are done correctly. He gets his oars. He's sitting in the boat. He has his map and his directions, but he needs the wind. Satan is that wind. Satan simply gives you the power to accomplish what you already want to do. My Bible tells me he sought a way to betray Jesus. (laughs) Okay. So I think today that Jesus decided that the best way to deal with Judas was instead of removing the devil, was to sit him down at the table 
and expose Judas to himself. Oh, my goodness. We're talking about communion now. Judas, I just want you to know that I know what you're about to do. Y'all don't believe me today. John 13 says it six different times. Those who have a bath need only to wash their feet and their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. That's number one. Number two, I am not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen. But this is just to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared bread with me has turned against me. Other versions of the Bible actually say he who is with me has lifted up his heel against me. Back then, that was a a, a sign of discouragement. That was a sign of, of, you know what? It was like giving somebody the finger today. Number three, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Verse 21, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and he testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Oh, my goodness. Then verse 27. (laughs) No, what you are about to do. Do quickly. John actually has a different version. He says that when Judas actually ate the bread, immediately Satan entered into him. So Judas, Jesus is there with Jesus at the table. I, I, just, I can't understand this. Judas, I just want you to know that I know what you are about to do. But Judas, look at the bread. Y'all not with me today. Y'all not with me. Y'all not with me. Y'all not with me. Jesus knows what he's about to do. And Jesus loves him just as much as he loves anybody else. And he says, Judas, I know what you are about to do. But Judas, look at the bread. Look at the wine. Look what I'm about to do for you. Essentially, what Jesus is saying to him is, Judas, it's not too late. I wish I had some help in there today. God, Jesus did not bring the devil to the table to expose Judas. God brought Judas to the table to expose the devil. Okay, you missed that, so I gotta say it again. Make sure you write it down and you tweet it and you Instagram it and all that good stuff. God did not bring the devil to the table to expose Judas. God is not about the embarrassment ministry. That's not what he does. Jesus brought Judas to the table (laughs) to expose the devil to him. Okay, okay. If this don't make it plain, I don't know what else will. The spirit of prophecy says every time the church takes communion and the ordinances are passed out, she says there is always a Judas in the house. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) Have mercy, God. Have mercy. Have mercy. Every time the bread and the wine is passed out. The spirit of Judas is in the building. (laughs) Every time we have communion, there is somebody who is sitting in the audience who does not know that they are close to not being saved. She says that with this person who is like Judas, there are unseen evil agencies and forces 
that begin to coax them to believe that they have no need to acknowledge the wrong that they are in. There are evil angels who whisper in the air. Just take the bread and the wine and get home as quick as you can. Don't worry about it. Just get it over with. Don't repent. Don't reconcile with anybody. Don't talk to God. Don't say anything. Don't worry about what you've done wrong in your life. Just take the bread and the wine and go ahead and betray Jesus. (laughs) So Jesus is at the table. And what he's saying to Judas is, brother, you still got time. God. See, what y'all believe is because it was predestined from the foundation of the world that Judas was going to betray Jesus. You think Jesus didn't care about his soul. Use a lie. (laughs) You're a liar today. I tell you, Jesus cared about him. And right down to the night before he was about to go to the cross, Jesus wanted to save him. Judas, look at the bread. Oh, my God. Look at the wine. I just want to save you. That's all I want to do. If you, I, I'm telling you, you, you still got time. Every time communion is passed out, spirit of prophecy tells us there's somebody in the building who does not get it. There, 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 there's somebody in the house who refuses to acknowledge where they are wrong. She says every time it's passed out, there's somebody that's sitting in the pews. And know they have ought with their brother or with their sister. And they refuse to get it right. But they will take the emblems and go right back out and betray Jesus all over again. Every time communion is done. Oh my goodness. There is somebody who does not take it seriously. And very rarely do they even think about the bruised body of Jesus. Or the blood that has been spilt on our behalf. Somebody sitting in the audience. Jesus is talking and saying, there's an area of your life where you will not let me in. And because you will not let me in, you cannot be saved. I don't mean to preach so hard. This is the word of God today. I'm just preaching it as it is in Jesus. There's always somebody doing communion (laughs) among us who does not get what Jesus wants to do. So here's what I say today. I think that every time we have communion, Jesus just simply wants to sit down at the table and have dinner with the devil in you. Mm-hmm. Okay, 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 okay. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Jesus is not just about the hanging out ministry. Jesus don't want you to just hang out with him all day long and happy-go-lucky and y'all skip to Malu and having a good time, but never exposing the area of your life that could possibly take you to hell. Nobody believes this word today. I believe (laughs) communion is a time when Jesus wants to come to the table and reason with us. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I stand at the door and I knock. If anybody will come and open up that door, I will come in and I will sit at the table and I will have supper or dinner with them and I will make my abode in their heart. I believe today, oh my goodness, that when the ordinances are passed out, it is a time 
for Jesus to expose us for who we really are. We'll go throughout our whole existence wearing masks. (laughs) We'll go throughout our whole lives and we'll never come to grips for who we really are. But Jesus says, church and pastors and ministers, I want you to set aside a time. And I want you to spread the table with my broken body and with my spilt blood. And I want people to recognize that even though they got demons inside of them, oh my goodness, and they're possessed with devils and they constantly make mistakes and they constantly mess up, I want them to know that my blood will never lose its power. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Hmm. Celebrating the Lord's Supper ever so often is about God exposing the Judas or the devil in all of us but us being happy that he did I like what Ellen White says again I, I rely on her heavenly she's, she's, I, I believe God spoke through her she says that communion ought not to be a sad and somber time ought not have a dark cloud in the church Everybody ought not be solemn and silent. In fact, she says, we ought to be celebrating the fact that Christ knows everything about us and he still loves us. Oh my goodness. That Christ knows what we have done. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Thank you, God. He knows what we are doing right now. He knows what we are going to do. And he still wants to save us. Oh my goodness. So, so, oh my Lord. Thank you, God. While Judas is sitting there at the table, have mercy. It's a dark cloud over his spirit. Evil agencies are manipulating his soul right there. The devil has him on strings and he's the puppet master, oh God. Judas is sitting at the table. And Jesus is right there. God is doing everything in his power to save him. Jesus said, even now, Judas, I'll save you. Even now, Judas, I'll forgive you. Even though you're you're in the act of trying to betray me, my brother, I'll set you free. I will save your life. My blood, oh my goodness. It'll wash your slate clean, Judas. All you got to do is ask me for forgiveness. And it's so funny how many times in one sitting, Jesus talks about the fact that he is going to be betrayed. It's almost as if he's trying to encourage Judas to ask for forgiveness. There's one of you who's going to betray me. You're Judas right now, yeah. Okay. There's somebody at the table that is going to sell me out. One of you is going to leave me hanging. And he does not get it. God's doing everything in his power to save him. Oh my God. 
even now. So I got two things from this and allow me to sit down after this because I'm tired, y'all. <laughs> um, uh, first thing I learned is this. Um, anybody can be saved. Oh, my goodness. If Jesus is willing to have dinner with the devil, <laughs> sit down at the table and have a conversation with him to give him an opportunity to be saved. There is nary a person on this planet God does not want to save. In fact, we're going to be all be surprised when we get to heaven. There are going to be people there we never thought would be there. People who messed up all their lives. But right down in their last breath, they confessed to Jesus, God, I want you to save me. And don't you say that's not true. Word of God says in Luke about the story of the thief on the cross. (laughs) In his dying breath, Jesus, remember me. (laughs) When you come into your kingdom. Never had a chance to act out what he believed. Never had a chance to attend a Sabbath day service. Never had a chance to eat veggie meat. No, 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 no. And Jesus said, I'll take that. And today I tell you, oh, you're going to be with me in paradise. Anybody can be saved. Shoot. Anybody can take communion. (laughs) We practice open communion here. Do we not, Pastor? Anybody who wants to be saved, we welcome you to the table. 